0: Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience.
1: Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Allison Mass, Global Head, of the Financial and Strategic Investors Group in the Investment Banking Division. And I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend and client, Steve Pagliuca. In 1989, he joined the private equity firm Bain Capital and was named its co-chair in 2016. Since 2002, he's also been co-owner of the Boston Celtics and a staple courtside at pretty much every one of their games. So Steve, thank you so much for being here.
0: It's great to be here.
1: So I wanna start today talking a little bit about your background and Bain. You were born in Brooklyn. You were raised in both Massachusetts and New Jersey before heading off to Duke where you played freshman basketball. And I can imagine that anyone who plays at Duke has at least a pipe dream of going pro. But instead, you went to Harvard Business School and then became an accountant. What led to the realization that your time was better spent in business?
0: Well, that was a fairly quick, uh, revelation for me. Uh, it, back in those days when we when, went to college, we didn't go down and visit it or check it out like they do today. I had like three or four brochures and my grandfather was a shoemaker in, in New York and uh, they didn't know much about colleges. So I just applied to some good places and I said, this, this is in the south, it kind of looks like Princeton, it must be good. And I actually showed up in college, I actually showed up Uh, My parents had moved away from New Jersey and uh, so I needed a way down there didn't have much money So I was I was moving furniture in the summer to put myself through college And I talked the truck driver who was going to Florida into taking me down to Duke uh, for the first time ever to see Duke after seeing the brochures and uh, My entire possessions was one green duffel bag. You don't you don't have duffel bags anymore, but they're just duffel bag That was it and we put it in the back of a 45-foot van with which we had just loaded up with furniture from a, from a wealthy person to move down to Florida. So we, we, 12 hours later, we drive all night, we get into Duke for my registration, and I see all these uh, people, these wealthy people driving up in Mercedes and their parents, and they're taking out TVs and stereos, all this refrigerators, and then I drive up in a 45-foot moving van. <laughs> and everybody's looking at me, and I get out of the van, I get out of the van, uh, we opened the back, you know, the two double doors of stuff. And so, so I have this one green double bag, I take it out, and they're all looking at me and they close it up. And I said, I'll be back later for the rest of the stuff. <laughs> so that was my entrance to Duke. Uh, I ended up going down there to possibly play football, but in getting ready for that, I was uh, playing with the basketball team. And the coaches liked how I played, so the basketball coaches came and said, we'd rather have you play, fo- play basketball instead of football. So I went on the team. When did I know I wouldn't be in the NBA? It was the first practice. When I came down, wanted to do my classic jump shot from the top of the key, and 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 you know once you once you you launch it and you know it's going in you kind of like strut back, and I launched it I started strutting back and then a six ten guy swatted it and went right in my face. <laughs> so so that was it. I pretty much knew my basketball career in the big time was over at, at that point in time because that was the freshman team and and my only record in basketball is I was the uh, I was the worst player on the worst Duke team in the history of Duke we were 500. <laughs> And we lost two games to Carolina that year on the last play, and one of those games, we were ahead by eight points with 17 seconds to go, no three-point shot, and we still managed to lose that game. So we had three coaches in three years. I lasted a couple years, and then I said, you know, I'm I'm better off being an accountant.
1: Well, it worked out fine. Not Not
0: that there's anything wrong with accounting.
1: Exactly. And then Mitt Romney recruited you to Bain & Company in 1982, and then you've been with Bain organizations ever since. Private equity has evolved a lot over the last several decades. And we'll get to some of the bigger changes in technology and investment philosophy in a bit. But personally, what is it about the industry and Bain that has made you stick around for so long?
0: Well, That's a great question, Alison. Uh, as I think back, uh, I, I was actually targeting to be an economics professor. My mother was a teacher and I was always interested in economics. The reason I majored in accounting is my grandfather and father we were always my whole life worried about the next depression coming. My grandfather was a shoemaker, people were out of work in the 30s. So they thought the next depression was coming and their blazing insight, which was true, is the only people employed during the depression were accountants. So if I, they were going to spend that kind of money to get a college degree, I should be an accountant. I didn't want to really study accounting, so I studied accounting and economics. Uh, then I worked in Holland for an accounting firm, which was a lot of fun for my first three years. And I came to Harvard to go to a doctoral program to get a doctorate in economics. DBA in the MBA program, and I couldn't afford the full tuition, so I worked in the summer, and I went down the list, and, and I got a job with a small company, Bain & Company, the consulting firm, primarily because it, it, in those days, it, it paid a lot of money, it was much more than moving, paid much more than moving furniture week by week in the summer. I didn't really even know what it was, so I was kind of off the turnip truck, and Bain was really transformational for me. I had two fantastic bosses. By the end of the summer, uh, I was so fascinated with actually implementing economic theory Back in those days, back in the dark ages, the experience curve had just been invented, the gross share matrix, all the exciting kind of consulting concepts to drive businesses forward. And Bill Bain had a fantastic strategy of using these tools to actually implement them and drive stock price for our clients. And his theory to go against what were then the big, big consulting firms, McKinsey and Booz Allen, was to only work for one client per industry, do it for a five to 10 year period, and, measure, and only work for the CEO, and measure our performance on how much the stock went up. So Bain was a very, uh, a little bit like Goldman, a very results oriented place, not just writing reports, but getting things to happen. And uh, I became excited about that, and they said, we'll give you a bonus. You can come here for three years, you've done well in the summer program. And then you go back and get the doctorate. And and I, I haven't been back yet, I haven't taken them up on that yet. But it's been 30 something years. so. Now I call myself kind of a, I guess I'm a, I'm a real-world economist, so I've accomplished that goal with, without having to do that PhD.
1: So Bain is famous for its investments in everything from Domino's Pizza to HCA to Toshiba Memory, most recently. So how would you say the firm's investment philosophy has evolved over the time that you've been there? And what are the greatest risks and opportunities for your business today?
0: One of the great things about Bain Capital is, is that I'm proud about is that we really have preserved our roots since the early days of its foundation. When Bain Capital was founded out of Bain & Company, when I interviewed at Bain & Company uh, the first time, one of the attractions was that they said, someday we're going to take these consulting skills and actually do, it was called venture capital in those days, and do venture capital. And I thought that was interesting, but maybe a selling pitch, it wouldn't happen because uh, they, they understood that was, I had an interest in, in entre- being an entrepreneur of building businesses. And uh, lo and behold, uh, two years later, a first fund was raised. Uh, Mitt Romney broke out of the consulting firm with a couple of other guys, classmate of mine, Bob White, uh, who did a great job. And they they had a hard time raising that fund because almost everybody they talked to said consultants can consult, but they really can't do anything. So it was was an uphill battle. It took, I think, two years to raise $36 million in those days. Uh, But they got it done and they then built a staff that was bigger for than for the money that they had. And went in and, and actually supplied those consulting services. For example, Tom Stenberg from Staples came in and said, I'd like to revolutionize the, the uh, paper buying business for businesses or business buying business. And I'd like to take everything that you now have to go to 10 stores to and put it into one football field size store. And we thought we did analysis and, and thought businesses could save time and money, uh, start companies quicker. So we backed him. I think uh, uh, Mitt Romney and, and, and Josh put 2 million into that company to help start it up with a couple other venture capitalists. And I remember sitting around Bain in those days and saying, you know, it's, it's probably a good risk reward because most of the stuff in those days was, was paper supplies and stationery and things like that. And it was taking business from little shops. And if it went bad, we could always sell the paperback. Uh, that then became a multi-billion dollar company and, and started the whole trend towards big box stores. So that's when we knew we were onto something that this value added model worked. And we, we quickly segued from being kind of a venture firm to doing mid-market deals and then large deals. But for the whole 35 years, the founding principle principles of, of number one, it was originally founded to, to really invest people, the partner's money to be an investor alongside investors. So from day one, the Bain & Company partners and the Bain Capital partners, whatever money they had, they put into this fund and then raise money from kind of friends and families. Only one institution put money in that first fund. Uh, so, so being a principal investor alongside our investors was a key concept. The second key concept was to actually go in and work in a cooperative manner with CEOs to drive business results, just as has, we had done at Bain and & Company. And the third was to, to be a really expertise based and, and, and kind of uh, uh, a shop that understood each of these areas which later now has evolved into a huge vertical market global practices. So we went from a a local business and venture capital to a, a, what would you call a mid-market buyout fund. Now we've used the same concept to go into all the asset classes and do that on a global basis. And I would say the most recent phenomenon as the industry is so competitive has been to, to really dive down and create a global technology group, you know, a global uh, retail consumer group, a global healthcare group, a global financial services group, a global industrials group, so that we can actually uh, add enormous amounts of value to these companies, uh, understand the industries. And finally, there's now an overlay on that in terms of bringing digital capabilities and digital marketing capabilities to all these companies.
1: So following on that, you've said that at Bain Capital, all of your companies have been impacted by the huge technological wave that's happened in the last 10 years. So how has that impacted your investment strategy and, as importantly, the talent that you look for?
0: We would say that uh, every company now is a technology company. Uh, Technology has changed and transformed just about every industry. We're undergoing that on a global basis. It's obviously been part of the populism and, 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 and kind of the, the nationalistic uh, populism cr- crisis that's been created across the world because technology has empowered everyone in the world and probably lifted two billion people out of poverty. Uh, the problem is it, it, it's left people behind in the, in the Western countries. So when you have technology that displaces uh, 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 service workers, technology that displaces clerks, uh, you have a lot of unemployment. And so, so, so we're in this period of unrest. But every company is a technology company And we need people that can look forward and understand what is gonna be the impact. I think we're probably still only in the third inning of technology impact. And we actually spent an entire uh, two-day global partner session bringing the Gartner Group in, who's expert expert in this area, uh, talking about how technology is gonna pervade every industry, how it's gonna impact it. And we've actually hired specialist groups to go in and help our companies uh, digitize. What, what one of our partners, Ryan always says, which I think is, 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 is spot on, is we wanna be on the right side of history of technological impact. And you can see right now the, the retail landscape, uh, the, 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 the internet really taking sales, changing everything the way we're doing. Uh, the, the, the Uber, all the companies that have sprung up because now we have instant communications and uh, instant capability to access anything you know, via cell phone.
1: So one of the other key trends we've been seeing in recent years is the rise of impact investing, ESG, as I say, environmental, social, and governance. And last year, you launched a double impact fund to pursue the trend. Can you talk to us about why you decided to raise that impact fund and what some of the opportunities for growth are with that strategy?
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. It, 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 was a, it was a fantastic fit with Bain Capital, and I think started out way back when uh, part of the ethos of our firm was to give back to the community. We'd all been lucky, most of us had come from uh, middle class or, or, or lower than that backgrounds, I think all of us, and, uh, and we knew we had a, a great opportunity to go to the schools we did and, uh, and have this fantastic job. So very early uh, when I came, and, and we all had very little money, um, we had an ethic to try to give back to the community. Back then probably more service because we didn't have much money, but when we made money, it's been a big priority. Bank Capital as a whole has probably been the largest uh, donor of any, any uh, entity in Boston probably for the last 10 years uh, is in, in the top couple at least for sure as a small company. So it's been a big ethic. Uh, second, we actually have done deals, uh, not in a double impact fund that had a double impact uh, bent to it, you know, Tom's which, which gave away shoes. And uh, our consumer uh, uh, guys in the leadership of Josh Begenstein and Ryan Cotton uh, obviously spotted a trend that today's generation wants more than just a product. They'd like the product to mean something. So when you put those together, uh, and fund investors are also trying to invest in funds that, that really care about social responsibility. So putting our own kind of ethic, plus what investors wanted, plus our experience, which had been good in this area, plus consumer demand, we felt there was an opportunity to raise a fund to make uh, really great returns for investors, but also have that double purpose. Therefore it's called double impact. And we were fortunate that several of our partners wanted to do that. Deval Patrick, who who's a great business person and, and been governor of Massachusetts, also was available and came over and, and loved the idea. In fact, he, he pitched us on the idea. Um, and so that came very, together very quickly. And it turns out that the skills that we have uh, and the experience we've had has been directly applicable to that. And we now have a, a, a fund that's specialized and it's going very well so far. And we're very excited about it. And it has it has another impact in that... In that uh, our people are very excited about it. Uh, it's, it I, I think the financial services businesses actually, uh, because of the crisis, because of history, have, have all gotten a bad rap. Uh, Goldman has given away hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for, for uh, people in need to build businesses, uh, for diversity, for women. Bain Capital has done the same uh, for, for the last you know, 20 years. Uh, so I, I think having this fund actually is, 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 is kind of a statement, you know, tip of a spear. Which really talks uh, about the fact that that the financial service companies have been giving back and I think uh, it's it's good to have that to highlight that for everybody.
1: So before we move away from the business side of your life, uh, I'm sure people would like to hear your views on the macro environment. So as we uh, enter the last few months of the year, markets and job growth remain strong despite uncertainty around trade and the political climate. What's your overall outlook on the economy, both near and long-term, and what factors worry you most right now, and what gives you the most hope?
0: Well, Allison, I always think those are dangerous questions. If I, if I knew the exact answer to the question, I'd, I'd be doing this remotely from a boat in the Bahamas, I think, of, near Necker Island somewhere. Um, but I, I would say, you know, the, the things that uh, excite me are the fact that if you step back, uh, the American economy has, has almost never been better as a whole. Uh, we've been oil sufficient. We actually are an exporter of oil right now. That's not really happened for most of my lifetime. Um, but the discoveries and what's happened with the oil companies in the United States have made us very secure with our own oil, oil supply. Um, we have the best court system and, and, and rule of law uh, of any, any nation that I know. Uh, and we have a, a, a very you know, driven entrepreneurial culture still here in the United States. So the combination of, of, of fairness of now that we have resources uh, and, and uh, uh, just the strength of this country has put us in a very good position. So that's, that's, that's the positive side of the equation. If you, if you look out every plane on one, every restaurant you go in is full today. So we are definitely at a low employment, full capacity economy, which is, which is, great, is great for everybody. I think underneath the rocks of that, uh, you know, things you, you need to be worried about in the next uh, two years to five years and 10 years is uh, there's an, been an enormous buildup of debt at the governmental level, both at the state level. You know, states like Illinois and New Jersey, right, right by here, um, are facing large fiscal problems. And even, even in place like Massachusetts, which is very strong, uh, 10 years ago, the budget for healthcare in Massachusetts was probably less than 10 billion. It's, I think, close to 16 billion today out of a 40 billion budget. So the state has really become almost a healthcare company with, with, with our care in Massachusetts, which is a good thing, but that costs a lot of money. So what could cause uh, issues would be uh, not getting these, and the federal government is running huge deficits again, even though we're at full employment. So the scary thing is with all that debt building up at the federal level and the state level, is that gonna cause crowd out and, and an a, a increase in interest rates? And if those go up dramatically, that's gonna affect the all time high markets. Uh, so to, to, to counter that, uh, you know, we are trying to have a very diversified portfolio. Um, we are looking at more defensive investments right now because we've been, in the largest cycle that we've seen, in, uh, I think, in history. And uh, interest rates are most likely gonna go up, and hopefully uh, we'll manage it so, so it won't go up so fast, and we, we, if we have a recession, it'll be a mild recession, but that would be the concern, and we're trying to position our portfolio with that in mind.
1: Okay, thank you. So let's pivot to talk about the Celtics and some of your other interests. You became the co-owner of the Celtics in 2002, which was a particularly interesting point in time for the NBA, and now the league seems to be in better shape than ever. So how has the basketball business evolved over that period of time that you've been an owner, and what do you see the NBA looking like in 10 years?
0: When we uh, looked at the Celtics, the Celtics have been an institution in Boston, and, and uh, uh, I've always been a huge uh, basketball fan since my days at Duke. Um, you know, Duke, Duke is basketball crazy and, and continues to be, in. Those of you from Duke, they're going to have a great team this year, so I'm excited about that. It uh, could hopefully be a double whammy for me because the Celtics should be really good this year, and Duke will be really good this year, so it'll be an exciting year. But in 2002, uh, I would say 25 of the 30 NBA teams were probably at, at a loss position, and the Celtics hadn't won a championship in 16 years, um, and the fans were suffering, and, and probably the attendance was 16,000 out of a 20,000 stadium, which is really good for a team that hadn't won in 16 years, but uh, certainly didn't fill the stadium up. So uh, I was fortunate to be called by Wick Grossbeck and Irv Grossbeck to help partner with them to buy the team, and uh, we we did we did a uh, Wick was a venture capitalist as well and we we jointly did a kind of a Bain analysis of the situation, and t- to be honest, uh, we we did not see the giant revenue growth that came, but we we did see is is a great community asset, an asset we thought we could improve, and uh, we thought we could improve it in three areas. Uh, the first area was put together a, a management team that would really uh, win a championship. When you win a championship, it's a virtuous cycle. Good things start to happen. Revenues go up, fans come back. Uh, and so we needed to get it on a championship path. Uh, the second was, uh, it, it had not done some good things to the community, but it hadn't really focused on using the power of that 40-year Celtics brand in the community. So we formed something called the Boston Celtics Shamrock Foundation. And we put together a fantastic ownership group in the community, all local folks. And uh, we capitalized that with a lot of money, and, and, and we're, we're, we're coming into our, I think, 16th gala now, w- which we raise over a million dollars every year and give, give that out to Focus charities in Boston. We get our players involved and all the owners involved. And the third piece, from a business standpoint, was to uh, make the fan experience a lot better. You can't win every game every night, but you, what you can do is make a fan experience better. So when we, we took over the team, they didn't really have email lists. They didn't really have customer relations. They just sold tickets. They didn't have market segmentation. They didn't have uh, ticket pricing studies. They didn't have. They didn't have cheerleaders. There's a great story about that uh, have, having having dancers at the games. There's there 30 NBA teams. One NBA team didn't have uh, dancers at the games, which which in Boston means that if you have the, the time out of the quarter, there's just silence and people are talking. It's kind of kind of was. I went to these games. It's kind of weird. People are just talking, and they're and then they go back and play. So so there wasn't a flow of excitement in the game. So we went to Red Arback the first day, we flew down to Washington and said, Red, we had this little business plan in our, in our pocket and we, we were gonna introduce the concept of cheerleaders. And so before we did that, he, he said, I have two pieces of advice for you guys. And he was, he was sitting at a desk with a rotary phone and 100 letter openers and some old ties and, and, and had been there for 30 years, nothing had changed. It, literally a rotary phone. And so he said, he said uh, guys, first thing is you need to get players that are instigators and not retaliators. So he wanted us to get players that were really, you know, would go out there and instigate. He said, "Great." He said, "Second, never get dancers or cheerleaders; they're nothing but trouble." <laughs> so he was a very powerful guy in those days. So we, okay, we shelved that plan, and it took us five years, and we finally went down five years later, because Mohican Sun had come to us and said, uh, "We will give you five hundred thousand dollars to sponsor a cheerleading squad and dancing squad." So we said, well, we have to look at this because we, we can use that money and get more players. So we went down to Red and said, said Red, you know, we want to bounce something off you. Um, we have an opportunity. We, we, we love to get dancers in. And he said, why in the world would you do that? We said, well, Mohican Sun has, is going to give us a half a million dollars. and in those days, we can get more players. We can get more instigators and retaliators. And then Red looked up and he had a cigar and said, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> so we introduced that, that five years later. So I think the combination of... of uh, Utilizing the existing talent and upgrading the basketball side, the statistics, um, and all the rest of it. Danny Ainge has been, been key. Wick grossbeck has been the best CEO, in my opinion, in the NBA for that time and, and, and owner, uh, lead owner of the team, and the fanics making the fan experience better, and then really getting out of the community has created a virtuous uh, circle. And it didn't hurt that we were successful and won a championship in 2008, and, and it's just just taken off from there. So it's been. We did it as a labor of love when we pitched investors. It was tough, by the way, to, to pitch investors because the Boston Globe paper near and dear to our hearts, uh, the day we bought the team, there was a picture of Wick and I on the cover, and it said, venture capitalists pay record price for team. And with that headline, every investor we went into, they go, oh, are we getting a good price for this? <laughs> it can't, can't possibly be, it's a, it's a record price. It turns out it, it was a pretty good price. Uh, it didn't seem so at the time. Uh, but it was a labor of love, and we used to tell investors, We're not the name of the company was Banner 17. Bold name, because we had 16 banners, we're trying to get a 17th. And we used to say, we're not going for 70% IRRs it's by 17 championships, and our, our pitch to you is, we'll try to not have you put more money in this thing. That was the pitch. And we got a great group of community Boston investors, a lot of partners at Bain Capital, Paul Edgley, Don Ferrante, uh, and some guys outside of Bain Capital, and, uh, and the Gross Specs, and it's been, been, been a great story ever since. That's
1: great. Now you mentioned data analytics, I want to ask you another question about that because the use of data analytics has exploded since you've owned the team. And how did the Celtics think about the use of data analytics, both in the front office decisions and on the court? Um, And has it impacted your management style or investment analysis of the team?
0: We, uh, from from day one when we did that study, I talked about the three pillars. The first pillar was to put in place a a system and team to get a a system and process to get a championship team. And uh, we all obviously had read Moneyball. And we thought there'd be some applicability uh, to that to Moneyball in basketball. I think we were one of the first people to, to do this uh, back in 2002. Uh, one, a guy who we had hired uh, through a contact of mine named Daryl Morey, who's now the general manager of the Houston Rockets. Uh, which, which there's all hope for you because Daryl Morey at that time was an analyst for Parthenon Group, who we hired to help do this study. And we liked him so much, you know, Wick offered him a job to, to be a kind of, kind of a COO position. But he also had gone to MIT. And he's the guy that originated the MIT Analytics Conference, actually. the first I went to the first conference in 2002. It was probably half the size of this room in a classroom at MIT. It's now grown to thousands, and it's in a, it's in a huge uh, convention center. But we all thought we should do this this statistic analysis. And we actually had some Bain folks help with this, too. And we did a lot of studies of, of, of things that predicted if you'd be a good player or not, um, uh, stats that would look at your high school and college stats and, and how that would compare to the pros. Um, and, and developed a kind of regression model to help us with the draft. That was, I would say that that was regression you know, 1.0, we're on 15.0 now. Um, that started to work, and, 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 and it's always critical, as you know, with management teams, a lot of the folks in basketball said, I, I don't wanna see that stats stuff, you know, just burn that up and you just waste a lot of money. We have a very enlightened uh, group running uh, the basketball operations, Danny Ainge, Mike Zaron, uh, Austin Ainge, um, and we actually hired a PhD from Duke uh, to help uh, supervise the stats, uh, the stats division. So they've got better and better and better and state-of-the-art tools. And it also has now been expanded to help players so they can look at tendencies of other players. So before we go into a game, we say we, go to, we have a customized video for each player saying, this is what the, what the person covering, uh, your covering is gonna do. He, he, he shoots from the left side 60% of the time, so you know he's mostly going left. So we feel like our, it's helped prepare our players. It's been a great tool. And our staff has, they've integrated, they, they have embraced it. So they actually use it. It doesn't just, the report doesn't just sit there. And then we have a coach that has signed on to that as well, Brad Stevens, one of the most analytic coaches in the NBA. So it is a, a great uh, basketball operations machine, which I, I marvel at every day with what they do and how prepared our team is. That's great.
1: Now the Celtics have a lot of history. You talked about Red Auerbach. There's obviously so much when it talks to the players, Bill Russell to Larry Bird, and you've added to that history as you mentioned with your championship in 2008. The franchise's first in 22 years. Before that, so can you talk a little bit about that moment when you won that championship and your general approach to helping run the team?
0: Well, the the uh, the uh, that moment was uh, was really an incredible moment, and hopefully we'll we'll repeat it again at some time in the next five years. Uh, but we had we had struggled. We'd come off uh, one of the worst records we'd ever had. Uh, most of the uh, this is a good management. List, and most of the fans were. You know, screaming, you know, fire, Danny Ainge, fire Doc Rivers, and some even fire, fire the owners. Which you know, it's hard to fire the owners, but, but, uh, but that wasn't feeling good. Sitting, sitting in those seats, uh, you know, I was going to go to the game with a bag over my head, uh, and 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 we met and we kind of assessed the progress, even though we hadn't done well. The reason we hadn't done well in the fourth year was because our star Paul Pierce got injured, was out 57 games. Our second best player was out, and we had a lot of young new talent. So we thought Doc, who was a fantastic coach, was doing exactly the right thing. Danny was doing the exact right thing. So we never even thought about making any kind of changes. Many uh, team owners, when you get that publicity, they change because there's a lot of pressure. You know, you're, you, you, I never thought when you bought a team, I'd be driving down the, the mass pike and you hear on talk radio. Uh, oh, the, you know, the, these guys are terrible. What are these owners doing? You know, you know and, and you react to that. We decided we're gonna go a fact-based analysis and go on performance and merit. So we kept everybody in place. And the very next year, those draft picks paid off we were able to trade one of the picks uh, that we had done previously for Kevin Garnett uh, and then trade a pick for Ray Allen, add that to Paul Pierce, and just a year and a half later or so, we won a championship. So one of the lessons is when you, when any business at Bain Capital or buying a team, you wanna take a patient, rational, fact-based approach, not be affected by the outside influences. There's, much, there's outside influences, as you know, from being Goldman Sachs, but they're intensified in, in, in the sports business. So I think patience, and, and, taking, and having a strategy. And then, and then secondly, great communication. So, so we, we communicated our strategy to the fans. We're gonna take a five-year approach. We're not gonna short-term it. We're not gonna bring in a, a 39-year-old player who might be good for one year and give us five more wins. We're going for the long-term championship hall. And our fans brought in. So even before we started winning, it went from 16,000 to 17,000 to 18,000. And then when we got uh, uh, Garnett, it filled up. And it's actually been, I think, sold out ever since, ever since that time. And because we've done it once as a team, when those when those players had, had uh, retired or are not here anymore, we began the rebuild, which was a very quick rebuild f- about four years ago with the same kind of strategy and the fans stuck with us. And, and so it gave us the revenue to do that. And now I think, uh, you know, we have a very, very competitive team this year, maybe in the top two or three teams on paper and we'll, we'll see what happens. So we're excited about trying to do it again.
1: So you mentioned being visible during the games, and just like Spike Lee is a fixture courtside here for the Knicks, you're a fixture courtside in Boston. And a lot of the owners sit in fancy covered boxes up at the top. Why is it so important to you that being close to the action and uh, that fan base, why is that so important to you?
0: Well, Wick and I were fans first and and owners second. Um, You know, We learned a lot of lessons how to be owners, but we started out as fans. And uh, oddly enough, it's a little bit serendipity. The previous owner, when we bought the team between sign and close, he would only give us two seats. He gave us two seats together on the baseline. And so we were forced to sit there. So we sat there and we loved it because we were right on top of the players, the action. You know, you, could, you, you, can, you can see everything. You can get into the game. It shows support for the players. And so most of our ownership group, actually all of them, you know, sit on the court. And, uh, and, 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 and so we become close to the players. The, the fans see that we're, we're real fans and we're enthusiastic. And again, it's part of that virtual circle, local ownership give back to the community, be involved in the team, uh, show people you're trying to win, and then people trust you and, and, and they keep coming. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a big uh, party at the, at the Garden every night.
1: I've sat in those seats next to you and gotten texts from people in bars in New York who have seen me. That's how visible well, that's just Well, that's
0: just because you're famous. It's not, not, yeah. not, not because you're going to sell this game. <laughs> exactly. Touche. Touche. <laughs>
1: um, so over the past year or so, we've seen more and more sports figures entering the political fray and NBA Commissioner Adam Silver has supported players speaking out on issues that matter to them. So what is your take on that, and how do you counsel your players in terms of speaking out in appropriate ways?
0: One thing I love about being part of the NBA from from day one and observing it from the outside and then being part of the uh, Board of Governors, uh, starting way back with David Stern, who was a fantastic, uh, I think, transcendent commissioner, uh, the NBA has always been at the forefront of civil rights, um, of, uh, of, of speaking their mind, of doing the right thing. Um, David Stern was unwavering in that, and I didn't think that could be taken to, a, to, to, a, to the next level, but Adam Silver has taken that to the next level. He's made, uh, early in the game, very courageous decisions regarding the Clippers franchise, regarding uh, how we're gonna be as a league and what we're gonna do. And we've developed, a, a, I think, a fantastic partnership with the players the league is also the number one league in having diversity as coaches. But one thing I love when we hired Doc Rivers is, is we honestly never sat around and said, should we get an African-American coach or, 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 or an Asian coach or, or a Caucasian coach? We said, let's get the best coach. The best coach on Danny Ainge's list was Doc Rivers. So we went heavily after Doc Rivers. And, and so that, that in, in America today, that's incredible because that wasn't a factor. We hired the best person and, and he's African-American and there, there are, are, are uh, high positions throughout the NBA uh, that are like that. So I'm very proud about that. And Adam Silver and David Stern were proactive about those kinds of approaches. And in terms of the partnership with the players, the players are very smart people in the NBA. And uh, we support the players in what they wanna do. We, we, our pitch to the players is, we'd love to work with you to effectuate actual change. So the Shamrock Foundation, the NBA Cares activities, we proactively work with the players to change communities, to use their power to, to make a better world for, for everyone out there for people that that are in need and and we support them in in those approaches and what they say so so we want we want to not, not just talk the talk we want to walk it and we walk it with them so that's resulted in our players I think really getting into it getting into it. We, I, I go I've gone several times to uh, uh, NBA cares events technology events uh, South Africa where we we uh, have an NBA uh, summer program to help kids and and we build, uh, houses for Habitat for hu- Humanity. My kids, have, each of my, one of my kids, has been down there to Africa to help with that. So, so Adam Silver, uh, and David Stern have, have I think laced this whole social responsibility into the league, and uh, I think it's it's a great example of how the league is even much more popular because of that. The fans yep. see the league as someone who is standing and doing the right thing, not 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 the right thing short term, the right thing long term, the right thing for all people. Bill Russell started this in in the uh, in the in the '60s. Uh, and in Boston, I'm proud to say we we helped uh, fund, the Celtics helped fund a Bill Russell statue, which interestingly enough is not at the garden. It's in front of city hall because it stands for civil rights as well as basketball. It's one of the few sports figures that is, is celebrated in front of city hall. If you come to Boston, you should see it. It's a, it's a wonderful statue and, and has a lot of Bill Russell sayings on it. But, uh, but the NBA fostered that, they supported that, and everybody from the NBA came up for that opening, including President Obama. So we're very proud about that.
1: It's a great history. So finally, speaking of politics, uh, in 2009, you ran to replace the late Ted Kennedy. And American politics has changed drastically since then. What's your take on the current political climate? And given the interest in outsider candidates, would you ever run for higher office again?
0: Well, that's a tough, I I know that was on the question list. if I ever run, at least the good news is I, I actually never drank beer in high school. Myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, now, uh, but it, it partly was the fact that I, I don't like the taste of beer. I still don't, I still have never had a beer today. Uh, and uh, and one of my when I was a freshman, I was really impacted. When I was a freshman, one of the senior great players of the school, who was going to be a quarterback, I think at Notre Dame. Uh, was, was drinking inappropriately at a high school function and the police came and they ran out with the beer bottles and he tripped, this is honestly, this happened, he tripped and he cut his wrist and so he couldn't be any quarterback anymore. That impacted me hugely uh, and he got thrown off the football team, so I said, you know, I'm not gonna touch anything in high school, so, so I'm good there. Um, <laughs> in, terms, in terms of the, in terms of the uh, political environment, you know, what's interesting, uh, my, my mother was a history t- teacher and I'm a student of history. America actually has gone through periods like we have today. Uh, it, it really has been, we had a civil war, in fact. You know, that's how bad it got in terms of partisan politics. Uh, if you think about way back into the 1780s, uh, people, many people don't realize it, but, but, but Jefferson, for example, wrote an editorial, and then he paid a, a guy named Calendar in Virginia Gazette to publish the editorial under Calendar's name, the publisher of the paper, which was an editorial full of falsehoods and terrible things about John Adams when he ran for president, and Jefferson won that election. And later he he didn't pay the calendar bill, so later about five years later, calendar sued him, but he was president, so calendar got put in jail, and Jefferson never paid calendar. But it became public that that calendar said Jefferson wrote this whole uh, you know piece of journalism. So we've been through periods like this before. Are these fun periods? No. The good news is America normally snaps back uh, out of these periods, and I think the second set of good news is that um, uh, what's amazing is with with what I would call a reasonably dysfunctional government with huge polarization, the economy and businesses and American general is doing well. And why is that? It's because of the things I talked about before, that we have a great rule of law. Uh, we, we do have a system of checks and balances, so we can't go too far in any one direction. And, uh, that's, that, that that's a testament to businesses and, and American people on holding those values together. Uh, Michael Porter uh, has done some groundbreaking work that I saw the other day on this whole polarization situation in terms of the root causes. And uh, you ought to take a, take a look at it, they, they published it. I think it's hot off the press. But a quick, a quick summary of it would be that, that the, the dominance of two political parties who control everything has made uh, everything have to become polarized because the middle doesn't count anymore. The primaries, they, they, they call someone, if, you, if you're not far left enough in Democrat, you're gonna be primary. If you're not far right enough in Republican, you're gonna be primaried. So their study shows that the absolute stranglehold of the parties, private institutions, over the electoral process has caused a massive polarization. And so they're espousing changing the voting rules to more the Australian system, uh, which is you rank one, two, three, and four. And in that system, uh, a candidate who has 60% support could win. In our system, uh, you could win 30% and win the primary and then, then become president. So, so their root cause is, is that, that only two parties and that, that kind of control has caused this polarization and we've got to reverse that polarization and, and, and it, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm hoping what will come out of this period, what normally comes out of periods of polarization are reforms that bring us back to the, to the very principles of America where people work together to solve problems uh, and actually get something done with compromise instead of take diametric opposite positions to get elected as, as the primary goal and no, nothing happening.
1: Well, and you didn't answer my question. Would you run for political office again?
0: Uh, you know, I, I probably did other stuff in high school that recruiting from the, doing that, not the drinking <laughs> thing, but, but, uh, but, but, but I, I would say, you know, I, I don't think I would because when I ran uh, uh, the, the, the kind of the asterisk is it was a 12 week election. Uh, today's elections, you gotta run for two years. Um, you got to be out there in the road all the time. I got a family. And, and uh, I found that, that uh, uh, me being an advisor to candidates and supporting candidates and getting these, these views across, I've been just as effective um, than being one person in the Senate and, and trying to work with that system. In fact, had I been elected to the Senate, um, you know, I, I might, I might uh, have been pulling my hair out or have no hair by now because as you know, working at Goldman Sachs and, and, and working in the financial industry, you've got to deliver results in all of our businesses. And it's very competitive. It's very tough out there. You've got to make decisions, have a strategy and do the results. Our government hasn't been doing that. And so if I was stuck in the quagmire of, of, of what's happened because of this polarization, you know, it, it would have been a very bad six years. So blessing in disguise. Um, I lost the election, and I, did, I, did, I, did, I, I, uh, I lost the election by so much, it probably didn't matter, I probably got, maybe my, my partners for Bank Capital voted for me and my family. So that was, that was probably 80% of the votes I got. <laughs> After, after a robust uh, campaign.
1: Well, it's better than them not voting for you. So that's true. That's good. Um, so before we wrap up, I want to, want to ask you some lightning round questions. Quick questions, short answers. Uh, so here we go. Best and worst job you ever had?
0: Well, the best job I have is, 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 is now. Um, I, I love uh, private equity and, and uh, helping grow and build these businesses, and I, this is a little longer than you want, but I think we have time. You know, when, when, you, when you step back, what you're doing, what we're doing is, we did this because we enjoyed consulting and seeing the results of our clients. We, we, we then transported that to investing, and our biggest charge is building these great companies, you know, working with the HCA's, working with Toshiba, a global company, and making them be great companies that then go to the public markets and do very well in the public market. So, so we've loved being part of that cycle. The result of that is we've done very well economically, and the industry's done well economically. But the goal, uh, with the primary goal, is is to make these companies transform them, be great companies, and that helps everybody. That increases employment, that grows the companies, that that's good for America, that's good for the world. So, so I've loved being in private equity because that's what it actually does. If you if you cut through the hype, then you go back to the lightning round now. Oh, the worst, the, the worst job. job. Oh, the worst job. I, that, that that was easy. Uh, I, I I had to to go through college. I did furniture moving, which I, actually was a really good job, but. Uh, a, lot of, a little stressful when I had a dresser on my head, and my head started to pop through the dresser because they packed it with silver. It weighed about 500 pounds. Almost died that day. But my worst ever job was uh, uh, a, a woman hired me to do weeding, but didn't, didn't inform me that, that I, I was all day. just I was just a young kid uh, pulling out these weeds, and I did a great job. She gave me a big tip. And then when I went home, I started turning red all over my body, and I realized I was weeding poison ivy. <laughs> that was a bad job. That's
1: a bad job. <laughs> I would agree with that. That
0: took weeks to recover from. A lot of calamine lotion in those days.
1: So which NBA player, active or retired, do you wish you could have played like?
0: That's an easy one. Well, there's two of them, Kyrie Irving and Jason Tatum. They're the two intersections of my life. Great players, went to Duke and are Celtics. So that's, that's a, as Brett Arback would say, that's a no-brainer.
1: That's a no-brainer. Okay, favorite all-time movie? Hoosiers. If you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be?
0: I think I think there's a lot of them. I think Martin Luther King would be up there. Um, you know, the the uh, w- 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 after we had the Civil War, um, things didn't really change in America for for till the 60s, and he was the precipitant of that. Um, it, it should have happened a lot faster, but he made that happen. I, I'd love to I love to talk to him about how he made that happen in nine nine way. way.
1: Okay, and last question. Best advice you've ever received?
0: I'd say it's two things. For my, my, I was very fortunate to work for two wonderful people, Harry Strachan and Mike Damato, my first job ever at, at, in the summer at, at Bain and Company. Just fantastic bosses and mentors, even today, uh, 35 years later. Um, I, the two things they used to say is, you know, you need to treat the clients and treat people how you'd like to be treated yourself. So, so that 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 was an ethic of Bain and Company, and that's extended over to Bain Capital. I and mean, people call Bain Capital the kinder, gentler, you know, your private equity firm. Uh, and then the second one, which I would advise all of you out there to, to really go by, is realize that all, and, and, and probably it's easier to do today than it was when they gave me the advice 30 years ago, realize all the world's a stage, Shakespeare, all the world's a stage, because people are, are, are not seeing what you say, they're seeing what you do. So when you go to a meeting and there's stress and you start to, you start to yell at a, a, an employee or a coworker, uh, that's, that's not a good thing. So always think. Am, am I projecting, am I projecting who I really am? Am I, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I uh, people are gonna watch me and I have to be a leader to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. So that all the world's a stage has always stuck with me ever since uh, Harry and Mike told me that back in, I think when I was running around the office like a mad person in, in 1983. That's, it's been great advice.
1: Please join me in thanking Steve for being with us at Talk with
0: Thank you,
2: it's great to be here. This podcast was recorded on October 4th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, As to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.